I happened to pick up a little book that I read while I was away probably two or three months ago and uh, was reading just the introduction of that book again this morning. And uh, one of the quotes that I read was from Tim Keller. And Tim Keller says, we are entering into a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards faith, and beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now, culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. And I read those words in part just to at least acknowledge, um, I have received many emails this week, but acknowledge that just a couple days ago, a bill was passed in Canada that is now law, and in fact, it's criminal law. The pastors of and uh, elders of PFBC are well aware of it. We have chatted about it, and we will respond to it in the days coming. But this law, Bill C-4, does illustrate to us something of, I think, a sea change that we've seen coming but is now codified in law in Canada. It demonstrates to us that we have slowly found our way into a culture of lawlessness in many regards, where man's word and God's word no longer means anything. I think evidence of the fear of man is found in that passage of that law when not a single individual, elected individual, dissented against Bill C-4. And the fact that it undermines the Canadian Charters of Rights and Freedoms, which again is a human document, and men and women can change that if they wish, but with a stroke of the pen, they now deny what is stated in the preamble of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that we recognize the supremacy of God. And it was an act, or a, the bill itself is an act to amend the Criminal Code of Canada regarding conversion therapy. I won't go into that in any detail now other than to simply say that what is discouraging, at least there's a few things that are discouraging about it, but also revealing about it, is that in the preamble to the bill, they clearly state that biblical views are myth and stereotype. And they clearly undermine the word of God and the person of God by declaring that it is no longer legal to encourage people to think about the reality that we are made male and female in the image of God. It's a considerable turn, I think, for our country. As I say, it seems to codify a feeling or a mood that many of us have sensed for years, but it's now been codified in that simple bill. It is really a rejection of God and a rejection of his word. As I sat in my office, I thought about this a little bit, and because we're in Elisha and Elijah, I went back to the very first message on Elijah. And Elijah came on the scene when King Ahab was at his height. And King Ahab was a man who at every turn defied the word of God. He didn't care about it, and it didn't matter to him. 
I want to remind us, and we will continue reminding us in the weeks and the months and years to come, should the Lord tarry, that the Lord our God lives, that he is not dead, that he is not impotent, and that he's not simply a God of a specific place or time in history, but he's a living God. And as the scriptures tell us, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We should be encouraged, though, by Elisha's or Elijah's appearance on the scene because it reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular successes in the world in which we live. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God always has his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. And God can raise up men and women, boys and girls, for his service seemingly from nowhere. And remember, God has a plan. Remember Revelations chapter 5, the scroll. The scroll is God's plan for this age. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. And whenever evil flourishes, it's only a superficial flourishing for at the height of what appears to be the triumph of evil, God will be there. And so I just want to remind you and encourage you of the power of the word of God, of the fact that we believe God is real and that changes everything. And as we move forward in our culture where some of these things are now a criminal offense to speak about, we will boldly, but kindly and prayerfully and gently Declare and proclaim the whole counsel of God on every situation that men and women may find themselves. I say that only because that there are some calls across Canada to preach against that bill today, but we have chosen not to do that, and we will, not because we're afraid of it, but we will deal with it as Scripture gives us the opportunity to do it. For now, we're back in 2 Kings chapter 5. And so if you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, and I think I'm going to take the chance and read the whole chapter because it helps give context to the latter part of the chapter. We dealt with verses 1 to 19 last week, and we'll deal with just the last few verses of it this week. But just so we have the whole context, um, let's read together all of 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that the Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter of the king, uh, to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, 
am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please, let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him, and he said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. And he said, Your and, But he said to him, Did not my heart go with the man who turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive oil and, or olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and field servant, female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Father, thank you for just an opportunity to come to your word. Help us, Father, open our minds. 
um, humble us before your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of me, as I was working through this, was wishing that the chapter ended in the middle part of verse 19, where Naaman says to, or where Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace. It's a far better way to leave church with the words, go in peace, ringing in your minds, than to leave from church with, so Gehazi went out from his presence, diseased, white as snow. I would always prefer the go in peace than diseased, white as snow. I would always prefer leaving the people of God and going back into the world with the comforting word of peace than with a challenging word of judgment. I would rather leave marveling at the grace of God than wrestling with the dangerous grace of God. And so as we come to the story, in many ways, Naaman is the center of the story. And as we work through the story, we look at it through the eyes of everybody who had something to deal with Naaman. Of course, there is uh, the main eyes through which we should see this story, and that's the eyes of God, where we realize, as we looked at last week, for God so loved Naaman that he, and we looked at all the different ways that God so loved Naaman that he drew himself to him and not only cleansed him of his leprosy, but cleansed him of his sin. But as we come to this story, we look at all these different people as they look at Naaman. For instance, we have the young woman, this little girl, insignificant girl that had been taken captive in a raid from Israel and had been brought back to Syria and was now a servant in Naaman's home. And she looked at Naaman through the eyes of love your enemies. It's rather quite remarkable to realize that, that she came into this uh, situation trusting in the Lord with all of her heart, not leaning on her own understanding, but letting God guide her past. Maybe she came in with the stories of Abraham and the fact that God said to Abraham, all the descendants of the earth will be blessed through you. And so as she looked at Naaman, she looked at Naaman with graciousness and with compassion and with tenderness, and she loved him. And she said, if only he would go to the prophet in Israel, he would be cured. And then there's Naaman's unnamed servants. I don't believe they were followers of God in any way, but they certainly loved their master. They loved their master so much that when he turned away in rage and was going to leave the situation and go back to Syria with his leprosy, they calmed him gently and kindly and said, listen, father, listen, wasn't this an amazing word that this prophet spoke to you? He said to you, if you just bathe in this river, dip yourself seven times, you will be cleansed. Do it. And so out of love and compassion for their master, they urged him and compelled him to obey the words of the prophet, and he did, and he was cleansed. And then there was Elijah. Elisha took the bull by the horns, so to speak. He wasn't even the one that was originally approached, but he heard that the king was dis despairing and was worried because he had had a visitor. And so he went to the king and he says, well, send this guy to me and I'll deal with him. If he wants to have an audience with the prophet, really what he wants is an audience with God. And I'll give him an audience with God and God will deal with him. But there's one more character that had to do with Naaman and that was Gehazi. Gehazi didn't look at him with love. He didn't look at him with tenderness or compassion. And he didn't look at him through the eyes of God. Rather, he looked at him with the eyes of hatred. He looked at him with the eyes of prejudice. And as I reflected on this, I thought, well, Gehazi is not really alone. Shockingly, his perspective on the grace and mercy of God dispensed and displayed in the lives of others is one that seems to cause many people offense. 
those who have tasted of the goodness of God, those who have tasted of the grace of God, those who have experienced the grace of God and lived with it and grown in it and basked in it now no longer have the same sense that others should receive that same grace free of charge. Gehazi had disdain for Naaman. In verse 19b, we realize that Naaman had gone from him a short distance, but Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. I want us to just stop there for a moment and think about the incredible privilege that Gehazi had. He was the servant of the man of God. He was the attendant of Elisha, the man of God. This was an incredibly prestigious position. There were many um, schools of prophets, at least three or four of them, uh, men that had been set aside to learn and to grow in what it meant to be a spokesman for God. And I'm sure Elisha had the pick of the litter when it came to all of these different men that were involved in these schools, but he chose Gehazi. And he was with Elisha. He was an attendant of Elisha. We have no idea where he came from. We have no idea about his parents. We simply realized that he was a young man. The word used of him is the same one used of the young woman. He was a young man, probably in his 20s, maybe, or his late teens and early 20s. And he was a tenant of the man of God. What an incredible position that he had. What a front row seat he had to the ways of God, to the power of God, and to the grace of God. He had been around possibly when the boy, well, we know he was around when that little boy died. And he, he saw the mom coming to meet Elisha. And Elisha says, go ahead of me and lay my staff on the little boy's head. And when I get there, we'll pray. And as you know, Elisha got there and he prayed. And the little boy, God gave him life. Gehazi, Gehazi was a front row witness of the power of God and the grace of God. He saw when uh, uh, Elisha changed the stew, which was poisonous, into an edible stew. He was probably aware of the fact that God had provided for this widow whose husband had died and was left in great debt. And she was able to, with the oil that she had, not only pay off all her debt, but have enough to live on for the rest of her days. He had a front row seat to the grace of God. And then just hours earlier, he had seen Naaman, who had first come leprous, had listened to the prophet and had bathed in the Jordan River and then had come back to say thanks and his skin was like the skin of a little boy. White and soft and perfect. Again and again, he had witnessed the grace of God because he was attendant of Elisha, the man of God. What would he do with that privilege? Well, he abused it. And you see what's going on in his heart when you read the very next line that takes place there. It says, Gehazi thought, some of your translations would say, Gehazi said to himself. We've been talking about this as a church for such a long time, about the importance of our self-talk, of understanding what it is we say to ourselves, what, that, what, that, what influences our self-talk, how we should um, change that self-talk and how then the things that we say to ourselves work themselves out in our actions and our behaviors. Before you do anything, you've thought about it and you've talked yourself into doing that particular thing. And so here again is this issue of self-talk and Gehazi talking to himself. And he says to himself, see, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian. 
there is the clue to what's going on in his heart and in his mind. There's a pejorative sort of emphasis in this Naaman, the Syrian. It says, my master has led him off lightly and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to make him pay for the grace that he has received from God. It really matters that we think through our self-talk. It really matters because the things that you say to yourself will direct your steps. In our self-talk, we examine what we think others' motives are. We look and we form opinions of other people. We think of, we, we try and interpret what they're saying and what we're hearing. When we build up a case in our heart um, of how we should feel or how we should act. And we justify those things by our self-talk. But loved ones, as I've reminded us before, you don't need to believe everything that you say to yourself. In fact, you shouldn't believe everything that you say to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, which is rather a misleading title, he writes in there though, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? That's a really important distinction. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. He goes on and he says, the main art of the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, the end of this great note is to defy yourself, to defy other people, and to defy the devil and the whole world. We must learn to speak the truth to ourselves, he says. Another fellow that I follow often, he uses the phrase this way. He says, we, we all of us propagandize our souls. We need to learn to propagand our souls with truth. He says, we all propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves how crucial it is to feed our souls true propaganda, especially about God. And so this is what Gehazi was wrestling with. It was his self-talk. It was, he was, it was what he was telling himself about Naaman. And what was he telling himself about Naaman? Well, I think the clue of it is the, the, those three little words, this Naaman, before the Syrian. There's an edge to that. He has an issue with Naaman. He doesn't like him. His consideration of Naaman was filled with disdain and hatred. It was filled with anger. Unlike the young woman who looked at Naaman with love and compassion, Gehazi is looking at Naaman the same way that Jonah was looking at the Ninevites, with anger and disdain. He couldn't stomach the fact that God would be merciful to his enemies. He couldn't stomach the fact that God would be merciful to someone who had so disregarded and disobeyed God. And just as Jonah, as Pastor Barry read, was angry because God had been good and merciful to the people of Nineveh, so Gehazi was ticked off that God had been gracious to Naaman. Notice, I don't know if you caught the words when Barry read from 
from Jonah chapter 4. Jonah basically says, I would rather be dead than alive if what I predicted would happen. He says, I would, be, I would rather be dead than witness the mercy and grace of God to the Ninevites. And Gehazi is saying the same thing. And it's not just an Old Testament reality. It's a New Testament reality. And it's a reality of the age in which we live and the days in which we, we live on. It's the very thing that Jesus put his finger on when he was talking to a group of people in a synagogue. And he uses the illustration of Naaman as an example. Jesus says to the people that had packed out this synagogue, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Right there, that's, that makes you kind of sit up and think. Many lepers in Israel. There's a lot of people that had skin diseases in Israel at the same time that, that, that Naaman had a skin disease. And Jesus says, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, none of them had faith. None of them believed in God. None of them believed who I was. None of them believed that I could cure them. But Naaman believed my word. When I told him, go down and be cleansed, he went down, dipped himself seven times, and he was cleansed. And what was the people's reaction in the synagogue when Jesus said no Israelites were cleansed? They rose up, or when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down a cliff. So offended were they by the fact that God's grace could reach a non-Israelite that when they heard Jesus proclaim that very fact, they wanted to kill him. This story about Naaman is as relevant to us as it was to Gehazi, as relevant as it was to uh, the people in the synagogue in Jesus' times, and it is relevant to us today. It's intended as a warning, this story, as a condemnation to all who have the privileges of faith and yet stub their noses at God, who, who, who are so happy that we have the word of God and we have the people of God and we have the churches and we have so many great preachers that, 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 that illustrate to us and teach us the word of God. And this is meant to stop us in our tracks and to offend us and yes, even make us angry. Is, is it not only Israel who is privileged? Are, are we not the, uh, or do we not sometimes think of ourselves as privileged? I've earned grace. I've put in my time. I've served at the church. I've given of my money. I've given of my time. I've sacrificed for this grace and this mercy. There's no chance that God's grace and mercy should be given to anybody else. And we look at people outside of our circle with contempt. See, Naaman was no friend of Israel. You have to work this through. This is, this is what Gehazi was thinking in his self-talk. The Syrians or the Armenians were enemies of Israel. Naaman was the commander of an enemy army. Naaman, in fact, had been successful in the raid that had brought that young Jewish girl or Israelite girl back to be his servant. Maybe Gehazi had witnessed some of his other friends and some of his other pals that had been taken captive by Naaman and the Syrian army. They were long-standing enemies of Israel. And in fact, when we come to chapter 6, we find again that the Syrian army was attacking Israel. 
Naaman was not the man through which the average Israelite would wish health and a long life to. Quite the contrary, they would wish him dead. Gehazi, in his self-talk, couldn't get past the fact that Naaman was his enemy. He couldn't get past the things that Naaman had done to his people. And so out of his self-talk, he determined to act. It was his self-talk that directed his actions. Truly, we can say of everything that we do, I talked myself into it. All the time. Every time. I talked myself into it. And it's leading Gehazi to undermine the grace of God in the life of Naaman. I don't think the main issue of Gehazi was greed. I think the main issue of Gehazi was hatred and disdain for his enemy. How is it that Naaman gets to take a part of Israel with him? He saw two loads of dirt get loaded on a donkey, and Naaman gets to take home a part of Israel with him. What do we get in return? How is it, this, how is it possible that my master is so blind that Naaman is getting away with this? He's gone soft on him. As the New English Bible reads, what? Has my master let this Armenian off scot-free? That's his self-talk. And a heart doesn't harden overnight. It must have been a period of months or maybe years that Gehazi was fueling this hatred towards Naaman. As the Lord lives, he says, taking the name of the Lord in vain. He didn't believe in the living God. He didn't believe in the God of grace. He was trying to justify his sinful actions by calling upon the name of God. It's like he's saying to God, how is it, God, that you can't see how you're being duped by Naaman? God, why are you letting him off scot-free? Really, God, if I were you, I would have been a little bit more demanding. I would have asked for a little bit more from him. I, I would have said, listen, okay, I'll heal you, but I'll only heal you if you do this, this, and this. After all, I can't give you something for free. I can't give you something for nothing. And so he says, I will run after him. That's the result of his self-talk. What is fascinating is verse 21 says he caught up to him. Here's Naaman trudging along in his chariot. And all of a sudden he looks behind him and there's some wacko guy running after him full speed. And that's when the lies begin. You see, this is what our self-talk produces if it's not self-talk that is sanctified by the word of God. He told him this incredible lie about two people that have showed up out of the blue and how they needed some money and they needed some clothes. And his master, Elisha, see, he's undermining Elisha's word now. He's undermining Elisha's graciousness. He's underlining what God was doing through Elisha so that Naaman would realize where the real power lay in his healing and his cleansing. And he took gifts from them and stored them in the house. Not his house, the house. 
Whose house? Well, maybe the house of the prophets, or maybe he shared a house with Elisha. He was his attendants after all, and then he left them, or he, he, he dismissed the men, and they left him. Fascinating. I think to myself, what was he going to do with that stuff? And he's a poor prophet. The next day, he was going to put on one of his new shiny little robes and walk out and say, hey, guys, you know, I saved all my money for the last 30 months of prophesying and bought this new little robe. And wow, isn't it sweet? What is he going to do with this stuff? Anyhow, he hid it in the house. And then it says, Gehazi came and stood by his master. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it must have been going on in Gehazi's heart as he stood there? You know, sometimes, you, you, you know, what you're, when you're nervous or when you know you've done something wrong, you're, you can't just stop your heart from beating and you wonder if somebody could actually see. My chest is probably just heaving. Or maybe he was worried about the sweat drops that were kind of beginning to form on his head and he knew he was lying. He knew he was lying. But he had justified his lie some way and so he's st standing there before uh, his master. And I'm wondering if he thought through his, well, I wonder if Elisha knows. You know, as kids, we're not always the smartest. And we sometimes did stuff wrong or do stuff wrong, and we stand before our parents, and they know. They just know by the way we're standing. They know by the way we can't have eye contact with them, all of this sort of stuff. They know that we're up to something. Maybe he thought, well, will Elisha know? Maybe he's taking a chance, because after all, Elisha... God spoke to Elisha a lot of times in a lot of ways. But maybe he thought to himself, well, there was one time when Elisha mentioned that God had not told him what was going on. So maybe I've got the second time when God has told Elisha, or God hasn't said anything to Elisha, so he doesn't know about this lie that I've just pulled off. Or maybe he was so convinced in the rightness of his actions that he said to himself, I've got this. I can convince Elisha otherwise. And then Elisha turns to him and says, where did you go, Gehazi? There's a world of theology in that question. There's a world of hope. There's a world of teaching to our kids and to ourselves in that question. There's a world of grace in that question. What's a liar to do? He's bold-faced lied. He's now standing before his master. His master says to him, where did you go? And he's got a choice to make. It's a significant choice. It's a choice of destiny. Will he confess or will he maintain the lie? This is a wonderful illustration of the grace of God, even extended to Gehazi in this situation. Would he stick to his self-talk that he had convinced himself in his heart? Or would he say all of a sudden, as he saw Elisha's face, as he heard his question, would he break down and would he simply go to Elisha and say, Ah, oh, Elisha, I am so sorry. I shouldn't have done what I did, but I lied. But I didn't understand you. I didn't understand why you were gracious and merciful. I don't understand why God would treat our enemy that way. I don't understand why God wouldn't take from him something, of, something which was little in comparison to what God gave him. Why was God lenient with him? Why were you lenient, lenient with him? I, 
I should have talked to you about this. And I suspect there may have still been consequences, but I doubt the consequences would be anything like the consequences of the lie were. His hatred of Naaman had so blinded his heart that he was unwilling to confess. So what did he say? Your servant went nowhere. I don't know, it was probably still dust on his feet, still trying to catch his breath. Elisha knew he was up to something. Wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from the chariot to meet you? I'm not entirely sure what Elisha is saying here. I wonder if maybe he's wrestling with the fact that he too sometimes wrestles with the freeness of the mercy and grace of God. Or maybe he was saying in his heart by saying that, you know, I, I too had to check my heart to Naaman. I know what Naaman's done to our people but I needed to obey God and not my heart. Or maybe as they had been chatting when Naaman had come and um, had offered him the gift of thanks and he said, no, go. Maybe he caught Gehazi out of the corner of his eyes just almost shaking with anger and rage. And he knew Gehazi's going to do something. Is this the time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female slaves. He knew that Gehazi had gone after him, gone some of the silver and some of the clothes. But he says, this is not the time for that. There's a real danger in trifling with the grace of God. Elisha's last words to Gehazi couldn't be of a greater contrast than his last words to Naaman. As I said earlier, his last words to Naaman were, go in peace. Beautiful words. Your leprosy is healed. Your heart is cleansed. I know God's at work in you. Go in peace. But to Gehazi, he says, therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, white as snow. This can appear pretty harsh. Why such a sentence pronounced on Gehazi? I think you've got to go back to Elisha's confrontation and conversation with Naaman. Why didn't Elisha go out in person to talk to Naaman when he stood outside his house with all his chariots and all his horses and all his gifts? Well, Elisha knew that it had to be clear that it was God and God alone who would heal Naaman of his leprosy. That it had nothing to do with him, it had nothing to do with his word, but it was his God and the word of his God that would heal Naaman and cleanse him inside. And why was Elisha so adamant about refusing payment or even thanksgiving or thanks from Naaman? Well, it had to be clear that God's grace cannot be bought. God's mercy cannot be purchased. 
That mercy is not getting what we deserve and grace is getting what we don't deserve. And everywhere through the scriptures, we are reminded again and again and again that we can't buy God's forgiveness. We can't purchase his grace. He is not beholden to us. He is not manipulated by us. But God's grace and mercy is extended to all free of charge. So when Gehazi went after Naaman, he was undermining the truth about the grace of God. He was undermining the truth about the mercy of God. He was saying, oh, my, my master Elisha made a mistake. Um, you know, our God needs a little bit. He, he needs a little bit of payoff. You know, he's changed his mind. And, and if you give, give this, then, then yeah, then, then, then our God is good with you. One wrote, I suspect, why was he harsh? I suspect it was because Gehazi was undoing what God had done. God wanted Naaman to know his free grace, but Gehazi was trying to put a price on the goodness of God. The God of Israel did not accept bribes. He would not be manipulated by money or make room for human pride. His grace was free. Gehazi was implying otherwise, and it would be at great cost to him. Our God can be as gracious to our enemies as he has been to us. Do you ever wrestle with that issue in your own heart? Somehow you talk yourself into thinking, I deserve God's grace. God saw something in me that made him love me. God chose me because of my goodness. Do you ever find yourself sort of thinking that from time to time? Because it's so untrue. We are undeserved recipients of God's free gift of grace simply because he loved us. Not because of works, not because of anything we could do. And that grace is as freely offered to our neighbors or our spouse or our enemies as it was to us. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. May we understand that as God's people. May we come to marvel and glory in the richness and the freeness and the bounty of God's grace to us. And may we rejoice in others who are recipients of the free grace of God. And may God check our self-talk when we look at somebody else and think they don't deserve it. They shouldn't receive it. They're too bad. They're too evil. They're too opposed to the people of God. They don't deserve grace. May God check our hearts. And remind us that God is gracious and compassionate to all. Father, we thank you for your word today. For the reminder in this account, which I think is such a significant account of your saving grace, of your compassion to all. 
And we see examples of those who wanted only the best for Naaman because they loved you or because they loved him or because they trusted your word. And we see the example of one whose hatred for Naaman was so intense that he was ticked off that he received your compassion and grace. Father, will you remind us first of the beauty, the richness, the wonder of your grace towards us. And then may we seek to tell as many people and rejoice in the transformation of whoever might put their trust in Christ and received free grace, enemy or friend, foe or family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.